You know, the further we get into TNG, the further I'm getting tested for exactly what the definition is of a lamentation. Now, as you can see by the title up there, I did not qualify this as a lamentation. But by golly, I had to think about that. <laughs> I'm staring at this one like, hmm. Is this a good episode? No. Is this a boring episode? Debatable. Uh, I didn't really have anything to think about other than a bunch of questions and a bunch of empty speculation. Uh, was it a bad episode? Yes! But see, once upon a time, going back to when I first started using the Lamentation title, uh, I didn't have to think about defining it. It was just obvious. I looked at something and said, BAM! That's a Lamentation. Bravely, uh, you know, uh, not Bravely Default, uh, uh, All the Bravest. BAM! Lamentation. All the, uh, all the Bravest was a Lamentation. Threshold. Lamentation. You know, Code of Honor. Lamentation. I didn't have to think about it, because it was so obvious. It was just an immediate apparent thing. And even when going back through and reanalyzing it, it was like, nope, that's still just as awful as I thought it was. I, I admit I was a little bit curious about Code of Honor for a while there, but even if we ignore some of the other problems with that episode, it was still a crap episode, just on top of all the other issues. So it was like, yeah, no, that's a lamentation. But I keep running into other episodes where it's like, is this a lamentation? Is Justice a lamentation? Is, is The Outrageous Okana a lamentation? God, I don't even know anymore. This episode... <sighs> I remind myself of how I originally defined the Lamentation status. Lamentation is as down as it goes. And this episode is not as down as it goes. There's many worse episodes than this one. Um, even in terms of the relative range there. If we're getting to the point where we're entering the gray at all, it's not a Lamentation. But this is... I also want to comment on something. I want to give a public apology, even though he'll never see this, and it doesn't matter, uh, but I do want to do this nonetheless, to Tracy Torme. Now, so here's the thing. I don't like Tracy Torme's writing style. I don't. I have commented on his writing before uh, in TNG, and I've pointed out how I feel like his writing just doesn't fit. I don't think it fits the characters, and I don't think it fits the next generation. It feels a little bit too TOS-y, which I personally find to be a bad thing, opinion, and I don't think it matches the characters, which, you know, is still my opinion, admittedly, but I could, I could prove that one a little bit more definitively. So, I've never really been a fan of his, and for years I have assumed that the reason that I don't like the Royale is because of Tracy Torme. However, re-watching it, there are a couple of moments in this episode with ha which have his fingerprints on it, but very few overall. Like, for the most part, this does not feel like a Torme episode, having gone through and finger-combed my way through his works, uh, having gotten up to this point in time. In fact, this is the second-to-last thing he will ever do for TNG. And now, having gone into the backstory, uh, that makes perfect sense. And I want to mention something. One of the questions I get most often on this is, "Where's my? where are my sources? Now, obviously, there's memory alpha, but that's... Oftentimes, there's literally no information there at all. No, what I usually use is I have a whole bunch of magazines, you know, just sci-fi magazines that came out of the day, you know, the, the unauthorized guides and all that fun stuff. But there's one thing in particular that has been absolutely invaluable to me, and that is Captain's Logs. And I should have had it here to show it to you. I'm not going to get up and get it. Captain's Logs is really useful for having behind-the-scenes information for uh, TNG, DS9, and Voyager. And it's good stuff. If you're interested in some of the making ofs or other stuff outside of me just telling you, I recommend it. It's about 20 bucks on Amazon right now. Again, Captain's Logs, plural, plural, just to make sure that's clear. Anywho, 
so uh, this episode is an episode that I kind of thought about pulling out my nitpickers guide and just going down the list because there's so many things wrong with this episode. Little details, right? But I'm willing to kind of go for that for a reason I'm kind of building up to. I mean, I could point out the fact that they go below absolute zero. I could point out how the casino works, which which isn't how it works. I could point out how the budget was just... Well, okay. Let's leave all that aside. There are many issues with the episode. And that's the truth. See, it turns out, Tracer Trome didn't actually really write this one, so go figure, my, my hunch on this was correct. Um, he wrote the initial episode. The initial It was his action episode he tried to push back in Season 1. And then they finally let him have a go at it. And then someone who, as I have theorized, was probably playing political games in the writer's room, Maurice Hurley, was like, nope, took it and did a rewrite of it, which is this episode. Now, again, I don't like Tracy Torme as a writer, but this is why I have to apologize, because I can no longer lay this episode's faults at his feet. In fact, I can now, I could pretty definitively point to two major flaws, which are so overwhelming that they kind of override the entirety of the other problems of the episode. That's one of them. An uncredited rewrite on an episode that was by Torme, and is a mess. This, this, the entire script of this episode is a mess. This is how you do not write an episode of television. Um, and the second problem is budget. Now, I've talked about budget issues off and on throughout the course of the series. Usually when you're doing a period piece, it's actually a little bit easier for a studio to do it in a sci-fi show because they already have those period piece sets ready to go, right? So, yay! But they were having really, really bad budget issues with this one. In fact, they they pretty much made a broom closet into the guy's uh, apartment, or not apartment, excuse me, hotel room, for example. Just draped a few sheets here and there and put in a sliding door, and there you go, there's, there's, there's his room. You know, they, they were so low on budget, and this is where it is most egregious. They couldn't even have an effect shot for the revolving door. Now, in case you don't know what I mean by that, there's a scene where they're like, all right, we're going to leave. And they go to leave through the revolving door and then just come right back in. And the super serious music starts playing. And it's Ron Jones, by the way. Probably one of the redeeming aspects of this episode is that Ron Jones is doing the music. And it shows. So this really tense, super t serious music is playing as he's coming back through. And it's like, oh, my God, they can't figure out a revolving door because it's so obvious, especially on Blu-ray, which is what I'm watching. But it's so obvious. Even back in the day, you could just see them walking through. There's no proce processing shot to make it look like they come in as they go out or anything that they, they otherwise could have done for that because budget issues. So it's got a little bit of a stage plot, uh, a stage presentation problem because of budget. It's got bad script because of two issues. Um, and that leaves us with our final problem here. The... The original purpose of the episode, and I really wish I could have found a copy of the script, was apparently going to be very surreal and uh, very satirical. The idea being to really kind of do some Twilight Zone-y kind of head games kind of thing. Now, that is not my sort of thing personally, but what we have instead is an episode that just prompts questions. In fact, I've never had an episode or game or movie or anything that I've ever covered like this where I've just written in the margin of my notes here, questions. Because there's tons of things about this that basically, it's not that they don't make sense, it's that no attempt is ever made to explain them. 
And you could say, well, that's the point of the episode. It's a mystery. To which I say, okay, if you just walk up to me and say, I wonder how that person five miles from here turned left and then walk away, that's not a mystery to me. That's just a question. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, in order to, de to design a proper mystery, you have to have clues, you have to have multiple potential answers, you have to have some degree of suspense or build-up or anything. Instead, all this is is basically, I wonder if Butterfly's dream is the impression I got from it. And again, I'm not laying that at Torme's feet, not anymore. <sighs> I want to comment on two other things really quick before we move forward into the episode proper. I don't have a lot of notes about the episode itself. It's a very boring episode to me. I, I had nothing to think about. That's the worst thing for me as a ruminator, as, as, as what I do for a living. Like, even a bad episode, I have stuff to talk about. A good episode, I have stuff to praise at. An empty episode, I just sit here and don't write anything down for 20 minutes. Ugh, it's really frustrating. Anyways, Cliff Bowl did the directing here. Now, I'm pretty sure I've brought him up before. I know I've brought him up over in Voyager because he is a, a very long-standing veteran Star Trek director. Um, and he's... He, I think he's a good director. I think he is a very good let's-make-it-work director, and that's probably why he's handed scripts like these, is because he is good at working while under duress, making it work, right? Um, you know, the adaptable, the dynamic kind of a guy. And I like that, and I'm with that. And I do think he did, like, the directing in this episode was better than it had any right to be, just to be as blunt as possible. There are several shots he pulled off which were legitimately impressive and got across some of the emotions or emphasis of the scene. But I feel so bad for him. Because if you look at his list of episodes, he's got about half of his episodes are bad episodes that he was handed. The other half are great. <laughs> I also want to give, I know I already mentioned this in passing, but I want to give a special praise to um, Ron Jones, who was a fantastic musician, uh, excuse me, composer. But I want to give credit to him but at the same time, I can't give his music credit to the episode, and I want to explain why. Have you ever seen a cartoon or a joke or even envisioned in your own head something where, like, you know, a kid's walking down the street, and then he drops his pencil, and his pencil lands on the ground, and all of a sudden, this incredibly tense, dramatic music plays, as if someone has just been murdered horribly, and, and oh my god, it's the end of the world. I mean, if you've watched South Park, you've probably seen this same formula of joke like a dozen times, right? The exaggeration of the mundane to the ridiculous, as if real life was a, a Hollywood blockbuster, right? It's a very common joke they pull. That's what it felt like in this episode to me. It felt like there's this really legitimately tense, suspenseful, interesting music playing over... Oh my god, there's not enough ketchup on my hot dog! Right? I, I, can't, I can't do it. In fact, if anything, it pulled me out of the episode because I'm sitting here thinking, why is that super tense? Anyways, so, why do the book scenes keep happening? I, I know that sounds like a weird question to bring up. But in the context of the episode, as a creator, why have the book scenes happen? Now, I do have an answer for you. It's so that we can see the final scene and the, the, the not the audience, excuse me, the Riker, you know, the squad, the team, the away team, there we go, can finally get the answer on how they need to get out of the, you know, get out of the puzzle. It's like, aha! But aside from that one purpose, it just felt like every time the book scenes showed up, it was padding. Like, 
The episode even goes out of its way to absolutely rake the book over the coals, as hard as it possibly can. Like, <laughs> credit to Patrick Stewart, he's sitting there listening to this like, I can't even do it, I don't have the facial acting that Patrick Stewart does, but he's just... As he's listening to the, the scene play out like, uh-huh. And Troy's like, uh, in fact, I wrote down what she said, um, did humans really talk like this? I was like, no, no, of course not. Nobody talks like this. You know, it's, you, it's this horribly, horribly bad book, apparently. I say apparently because I've read so much worse. I've read Crystal Star. Um, <laughs> sorry. I've also read Death Troopers. Um, <clears throat> if we want to go that direction with it. But, you know, it's like, oh my god, it's this horribly, horribly disgusting book. And yet the episode keeps focusing on it. Like, I get that, again, this is probably part of the rewrite issue. But it stops being satirical when you just do the thing. This is this is a problem that many sat satires have had with uh, over the last several decades, especially in film. It's not funny to say, "Look, they're doing this thing," and then to not add anything to that. That's not satire. That's just doing the thing, which is what they did in this episode. <sighs> um, which brings me to my next point. I've actually debated this episode with fans of Star Trek before, and it'll be really interesting to see your guys' comments. I really am legitimately curious, because I have had a few people defend this episode. Not that it was good. I have never heard someone say that this episode was good. But I have heard people defend it as if it's not horrible. And the usual defense is actually very simple. Every aspect, or most aspects, of bad writing in the episode are a direct corollary to the book being badly written, which is the point in character. Therefore, all complaints are invalid because the book itself is bad, and that's the point. To which I once again reiterate my earlier point about satire. Um, it, I, I'm really curious to hear if you guys have any other uh, defenses or otherwise of this episode. Um, <laughs> I actually, just today... This is not a joke. I actually got accused of being toxic on my TNG stuff. Again, it's, it's, it's becoming an increasingly funny thing to me. It started to become a, a running gag for me and my friends. But uh, whatever you may assume or whatever you presume of my mentality or whatnot, I love hearing your guys' thoughts on this stuff. I really do. It is a treat every Monday morning and Tuesday morning when I wake up, uh, well after the episode's gone live, and... You know, it's one of the first things I do in my morning is I hop on and I check all the comments, and I love reading this guy's stuff, so please share with me. I really do want to hear your guys' thoughts. Um, that welcoming atmosphere is important to me. We need to have this kind of open forum of discussion. I may not respond to you, but I assure you, I am reading 100% of your guys' thoughts, so please, please share. Okay, so... <clears throat> so, then Data has super gambling. Even as a kid, that bothered me just a little bit. Now, um, maybe I'm weird because I've actually been exposed to Vegas more than a few times in my life. Um, a lot of my family, I know I've said this before in my streams, a lot of my family has settled in Vegas and retired there uh, towards the end of their lives. And so I have been to Vegas for much of my life. In fact, my grandparents live there right now. My uncle lives there right now. My other aunt and uncle are moving there soon. My mother's moving there soon. You know, there's a chance I might end up in Vegas eventually. So, uh, my point is, even as a kid, I was at least a little bit, like, passively exposed to casinos and gambling. And I looked at this episode like... And I actually asked Mum about it. I'm like, Laura Mum? Because I totally called her that. Laura Mum, 
can you just super gamble like that? Can you just predict that? And she says, I think he's supposed, he, I think he's cheating by perfectly tossing it in the perfect way each time. Wouldn't they call him that on that, Mom? Yes, they would. Okay. <laughs> Again, it's the book, right? We're just supposed to go with it. I get it. But it's funny to me that apparently you can just super gamble like that. It's also funny because the one credit I will give the episode is the fact that they did that with craps, which is something you have a control over. You have control over exactly how you toss the dice. Uh, if this was several other card games, that that amount of control would still lean in your favor in the long run, but you wouldn't be able to, for example, win every single hand, right? Anyways, but I also want to talk about a theory. So Colonel Ritchie and his crew are dragged here. Now, I have heard two predominant theories over the years, and as ever, if you got any new ones, I'm listening. One of those theories is that it was one of the caretakers' people. Now, this is quite a ways before that stuff would happen. I don't remember how long. Eight years? Something like that? Until Voyager would start and caretaker would grab Voyager. But we know he's been doing this for at least a little while. In fact, some people have pointed out if the uh, him dying problem and the Ocampa problem has been you know, a significant issue for years, this could quite literally be him trying to reach out to humans this early on. And I could agree with that. My only question is what happened in the interim and who else got involved because the caretaker doesn't do this kind of thing. Like, he has holograms, of course, but he doesn't do this. So, okay, I'm going to set you up with this permanent death loop thing, which we'll talk about in a second. So I'm not quite, I don't quite buy the caretaker theory myself. The other theory I heard is that it's the Briori. All right, be honest. How many of you know who the Briori are without looking it up? I am not raising my hand, because I had to look it up. Now, if I say the 37's aliens, you probably know who I'm talking about. <laughs> They're never even seen. They're just mentioned. The Briori. The idea that this was another group of people that the Briori were trying to grab, and then stuff went bad, and then and I don't know why they were this. I don't quite buy that either, to be completely clear. Although, to be uh, perfectly blunt, the Briori never made a lot of sense anyways, so I suppose that's a problem. So what's my theory? I actually don't have one. When I am given a blank piece of paper, I can write my own story. But when you're asking me, asking me to speculate a blank piece of paper, I got nothing. There are so few facts here that all I am left with is questions. Because it's not a mystery, which is tying up to my previous point. Which brings me to my questions. Like I said, I had them jotted down. All of these can be answered. And, in fact, I would love to hear your guys' answers on some of these. Why is the building not visible from the outside, but the revolving door is, even though there is no seeming necessary way to enter or leave, even though there's a thing preventing people from leaving, even though you can scan it from orbit and still detect the entire building? Why is it that this is a non-adaptive, adaptive holodeck? Let me explain that one for a second. There are several scenes which make it clear that the people there have absolutely no interactions possible with the crew. And then it's very, very clear that they are capable of adapting on the fly to the crew. To explain what I mean by this just a little bit better. If you're playing a video game and you talk to an NPC, they basically have a set script they can say. It doesn't matter what you say. In general, you don't say anything. You just hit A or whatever. But, you know, you can't act, they can't respond in any other way. They are following a script. 
if you were playing Dungeons and Dragons and you walk up to an NPC and say, I want to talk, I, you know, and you say something like, the GM who is running that game can then respond to what you, the player, said. That is the adaptive part. Make sense? So sometimes the, holo- the, the holiday, the, the, the royale, is adaptive. In fact, most of the time it's adaptive. But then sometimes it's not. What governs which is which and why? Next question. Why do they not get any signal or scans from the area? Like, why is it just... They actually go out of their way to say, these people are not alive. But then they never bother to define what they are. The only thing they say is that they're not an illusion. Are they energy beings? Are they holograms? Are they actual meat puppets? Are they chunks of phosphate? Why does the book need to end? Actually, I have so many questions about the book part of things that I'm going to bury these down. How does the program decide who is which role? By the program, I mean the royale. Like, how does it, you know, someone shows up, how do they slot them into a pre-existing role? In fact, I have a better question than that. How does someone slot in at all? How does it know that one of the players is trying to slot into a role and therefore removes that role? Because the foreign investors never actually show up. Like, you kind of think they would. Instead, it just sort of assumes that Riker and crew are the foreign investors and is totally okay with basically, you know, removing the actual actors and replacing them with the crew. How does it know to do this? Why does it know to do this? What role did Colonel Ritchie have back in the thing? Did he have any role? Were they adaptive to him? Were they not adaptive to him? Given the fact that the book kind of plays out, more or less literally... I want to stress that for a moment, because this is actually important. It's not like it's... They mention an idea that the the simulation, the royale, is built off of what is presumed to be the ideal style of life, based on the book. However, as we see, what is actually happening is the simulation is directly copying the book word for literal word as it's going through the events of the pages. Picard is able to quite literally go to the page an event just happened and say, oh, yep, it's right here. Which means the book has to keep playing, which means the book probably ended at some point, and then cycled over and started over. Or maybe it didn't? Maybe it never ended? Maybe it needed someone external to start going? Question, 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 question. Here's one for you. Why can Troy sense them with ease when their scanners are having trouble telling that they're there at all. No signal, no nothing, and it took extensive effort, I kind of like that part if I'm being honest, in order to just be able to communicate with them. Why do phasers do nothing to this place? Why was it built to be re- re- defensive to the point where it could resist you know, offensive fire? Why is it still going despite the fact that Colonel Ritchie is dead and has been dead for a while? How many times has the book cycled while nobody's been there to watch it? Why did Colonel Ritchie never complete the book? Bonus question. Maybe he did figure it out, complete the book, left, and then was screwed because there's nowhere to go. I I could raise some more specific individual little questions mostly related to the book holodeck simulation nature of the thing. But I don't care enough to keep doing so. I think we have the possibility, like the bare bones of what might have been an interesting episode here. Um, 
or at the very least, an episode that wouldn't be bad. You know, we've seen the kind of episodes of engineer a circumstance to study a species, right? Or maybe we are a specific type of alien who is who our culture is universally defined by our literature to the point where our literature is actually how we interact with other species, and thus. After this accident, when they, they they decide to interact with humanity, literally via the book, and then of course humanity didn't know what to do with that, so the aliens just kind of left. Oh yeah, that's another question. Where'd the aliens go after making this thing? Also, why'd they make it here? How did he get here? Anyways. <clears throat> like I said, I can keep going with these questions. But instead, all I'm left with is the Royale. <laughs> I do hope you've at least enjoyed uh, listening to me talk about this, and I do hope that I will see you guys next time.